okay. It should be going. Yeah. The other problem is (laughs) I'm sure I've answered this question so many different ways. And it's funny that actually having it like either written or otherwise I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I was saying at that point. Cause I've been doing this project for so long. Um, so, so audience wise, like this is something that, cause I I'm actually, so Myron Penner is my advisor. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, he said he had met you. Um, and he's, yeah, he's been very helpful. Of course, he's also very busy, but he'll be like, okay, yeah. So what's the audience? You got to figure that out. You know, like that's, and that's months ago. Yeah. Um, so I think the way it's evolved a little bit is that, yes, it's, it's my, for my degree, I will be presenting it. It's kind of an examination of this deconstruction process and what's going on and why it's happening. Kind of some of the, I would say philosophical and or theological roots of that. However, I think ultimately my dream is to turn it into something that is accessible to an outside audience, whether it's going to, you know, change form at that point or like, you know, be more edited for that direction. Um, We'll see. I anticipate that. Yeah. You know, again, making something accessible, there's a lot more considerations and just even, I'm sure you're very aware, you know, you wrote, yeah, (laughs) you wrote your one book and you're like, this is for a broader audience, the Barnes and Noble audience. And that's, and that's kind of the thing, like, I, I, and I'm not that far away from that. I came to this degree. I didn't study philosophy for undergrad or, the, you know, theology or anything. So within not even two years, I've been introduced to so many ideas that I didn't even have any language to yeah. begin talking about. So in that regard, that's, I think, ultimately, I, I would like it to be something, um, for a broader audience. And I would say mainly people. So I'm in my later twenties. Um, the people I see deconstructing are like predominantly people in like maybe the second half of their twenties, early thirties, you know, maybe a little younger, older, what have you, but where it's kind of this thing of this is, especially when it's something someone grew up with kind of facing these facts for the first time in a way that's really like, you know, unnerving, honestly. So yeah, yeah. that's kind of my main, and that's, that's what I'm here. Yeah. I kind of want some of your thoughts today, um, about that and just about other things in, in, you know, in terms of open and relational theology as well. Um, but yeah, and actually, sorry, I left my notebook on my <laughs> nightstand. I'm just no going to grab it. I'm going to get some water too. So okay. I'll be right back. Also. So yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, awesome. And any time I need to clarify, sometimes I get t- like, I do get talking more quickly. <laughs> so if you need me to reframe things or if you want to reframe things or clarify at any point, uh, please feel free. Sounds good. Also, um, do you, should I call you, can I call you Dr. Ord or Thomas J. Ord? Or <laughs> you can, but you know, I really prefer people call me Tom. Is okay. It okay or is it All right. i mean if, unless it's important for your purposes to call me dr ord i prefer tom i i i will call you tom okay. <laughs> <laughs> i think it'll be okay but right. yeah awesome well yeah thank you tom so i guess just a little bit of um background information i i've kind of again heard some of this but 
Um, I would love to hear a bit about your faith tradition and uh, kind of how you grew into that. And, um, and then, you know, how that kind of brought you to this place of relational, open and relational theology. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a small farming community. My father was a a school teacher. My mother kind of had a variety of different jobs, but the church, and in our case, it was the church of the Nazarene was central to our family life. Uh, My parents were board members at that church for 40 plus years. They ran lots of things, you know, led choirs, Sunday school classes. um, And I was there an awful lot. And it was an important, it has been a really important uh, part of my life, my growing up. I uh, like to say I accepted Jesus into my heart many times as a kid. Um, And in youth group, I was not one of those people looking in from the outside. I was at the center and the leader. And and I would say that I also didn't sort of accept uh, kind of a white bread Christianity. You know, we thought we were radical. Uh, We were going to take things seriously. We, you know, shared our faith. We witnessed we uh, read what we thought was the most cutting edge, you know, Christian uh, literature. And, and back, I'm old enough to be a part of the time when rock and roll was still looked at pretty uh, <laughs> <laughs> badly by Christianity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I would go to the, the Christian bookstore and buy albums based on the length of the hair of the guys in the band. No you know, way. I wanted, I wanted the hard <laughs> stuff. <you know? laughs> and I was in bands myself in high school and in college. Uh, oh, wow. So I wasn't like a fence sitter. I was gung-ho in the midst of things. I, I could imagine me going into some kind of ministry when I was in high school. And people in my high school knew me as a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to college and after being a communications major for a short time and then a psychology major, I ended up in religion because I just figured that's what I was cared the most about. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, I did a lot of studying. I read books and I thought that uh, I needed to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ or whatever the language we used at the time. And that meant uh, joining Campus Crusade for Christ. It meant uh, witnessing in bars and on beaches and on Mm -hmm. airplanes. And, uh, you know, we were we thought of ourselves as hardcore Jesus freaks. Uh, um, And during that time, um, I started to see that my efforts weren't as fruitful as I expected. Uh, people weren't just, you know, up and changing their lives immediately (laughs) and becoming like uh, us. And I also had some questions about God and what was the right thing to believe. And uh, there were some people in our group who I thought were, uh, well, I now call them anti-intellectual. At that time, Mm -hmm. I just thought they were uh, thick-headed maybe. Yeah. And um, I wanted to, uh, if I was going to believe in God, and of course at that time I definitely did, I thought I needed to have some intellectual basis for my beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a religion major at this time in college, and I'm coming to my final year, winter semester. I take a course in philosophy of religion. 
Now I started getting into philosophy before this course and I, you know, really liked it. But this particular course, it kind of turned my world upside down because um, I was reading really smart people who were not Christians, who were mm -hmm. from other faith traditions or no faith traditions, agnostics mm -hmm. and atheists. And uh, maybe unlike some people, I was like taking it really seriously. <laughs> and I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife. Mm -hmm. She was a religion major as well. Her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I can't believe in God anymore. Whoa. And for me, that was, that was an intellectual thing. Like, you know, I wasn't rebelling because I wanted to have sex or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I hated my youth pastor or something like that. Or I wanted to, I didn't like my parents. It was because of intellectual reasons. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in that state for not a whole long period of time, but uh, at least months. Mm -hmm. um, but I kept at this whole process of thinking through things. Yeah. And I eventually came to think it was more plausible than not that there was a God. Mm -hmm. And um, there were really two things that were at the heart of my deciding that I could believe in God again. Mm -hmm. One was I, I thought life had to have ultimate meaning. or Maybe I just wanted life to have mm -hmm. ultimate meaning and um, belief in some kind of God seemed to ground that meaning. Mm -hmm. And the other was, I knew that I ought to be a loving person and other people ought to love. And I couldn't imagine the source of that kind of intuition if there wasn't a God. Mm -hmm. um, so we might call this deconstruction and reconstruction, except the way I'm telling it sounds kind of quick. And <laughs> I think almost everybody, most people I know at least, it takes them a while. Yeah. And my reconstruction took quite a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. I graduated from college. My wife and I got married that summer and I started looking for jobs as a youth pastor. Oh, wow. And I remembered uh, interviewing at one particularly large church and I liked the pastor and he asked me what I thought of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was honest. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not sure he's divine or God, but um, I do want to follow him. Yeah. And yeah. I did not get that job. <laughs> well, pretty good much, you were honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, pretty much my view for quite a few years was I thought there was a God of love. Mm -hmm. Couldn't prove it. Still can't prove it. Yeah. I thought Jesus is pretty cool. And everything else, I uh, wasn't really committed to much of anything else. You know, yeah. I could say the things, but that was about all I had for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is, I mean, this is crazy. Well, I've got a lot of questions now because it's kind of, I don't want to say necessarily trendy, but in a way this, this kind of process you're describing, maybe without the reconstruction, but kind of being like, you know, I'm, I'm not turning a blind eye and being ignorant anymore. I think that is kind of a, a move right now. Like, you know, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, again, I told it, I said it'd be a little more or less formal here. Like yeah. this is, this is kind of, you know, a lot of honestly, my own personal journey, you know, cause I remember being yeah, a 13 year old kid in Christian school 
nervous about predestination and not able to comprehend, (laughs) like freaking out. And I go home to my, you know, semi-Baptist parents and they're kind of like, not concerned and i'm like we should all be very concerned about this you know i love it yeah and i even said i mean i said to myron like i think i came to do this philosophy degree essentially to get an apologetics degree like without really knowing that for myself until i was in it and then i'm like oh i see (laughs) i see what's been happening um but yeah but i think i mean I, th- I think that's something that at that time, I don't know, did it feel like lonely? Like, I mean, was even- Oh, massively lonely, yes. Was your wife like this scared pr- when you told her that? <laughs> yeah, she was very scared. Um, you know, this is pre-internet. So that's, yeah. that's one of the major differences between people deconstructing today and the past. Um, in the past, I felt even more alone because I thought I was the only one. Yeah. It's also, I think, the case today that because of the internet, people perhaps maybe deconstruct more quickly or more of them because there's more information out there. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was, again, an intellectual quest trying to read the very best in theology, philosophy, and science, and the humanities. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, many lonely years. I remember at one point, I, I eventually got a job as a youth pastor and uh, my wife knew my views and she knew that the church thought I th- believed something other than I really did. <laughs> you know, they wanted me to say yes to all this list of doctrinal claims and my view of God, you know, I believed in loving God, thought Jesus is pretty cool and everything else was, you know, <laughs> up for grabs. Yeah. And uh, she wondered if I could with integrity be a pastor in a place where they thought I believed X and I really didn't believe X. Mm -hmm. And I remember sending a letter to my philosophy professor in college and asking his advice. (laughs) And the thing that he said was, don't tell people what you think. (laughs) and Don't tell your wife. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. So I did not, uh, I didn't follow his advice on my wife. But he did say something that I thought was helpful, and I continue to think it's helpful today. He said, um, it may be that the people in your congregation are not at the same place that you are at, and it would not be kind to them to Mm -hmm. somehow try to bring them to where you are. It may be uh, the case that uh, you should, in love, meet them where they are and uh, do your best to, you know, affirm the things that they believe that you can affirm. And I thought that was helpful advice. Wow. That's actually, that's crazy. That's going to be uh, the last line of this project is uh, <laughs> yeah. going to plagiarize that. No, um, <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, you're saying that, I mean, I already mentioned my parents. I, I honestly think that this is just so not on their radar in any oh. way. And even today I was on the phone with them for like, you know, 10 minutes or something. And I, um, I'm also, I'm from the States. I'm up in Canada, but I'm from Pennsylvania. So oh, okay. uh, yeah, just, I mean, a bit of actually talking about Wesleyan stuff. My dad went to Houghton college. Oh um, yeah. I know people at Houghton. Yeah. Yeah. So he went there and my sister went there. Uh, and I was always, we always went up as a kid. Cause he just, he's still, he's actually, he's teaching a course. He's, he was a lawyer. He just retired like a year ago. But he's teaching a course in their business 
program. Yeah. Um, well, just... if you were from Pennsylvania, did you know uh, Eastern Nazarene College in Quincy, Massachusetts? <sighs> that, not really? I, well, you know what? I wonder if, because there's Eastern outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, that's a different so I, one. I'm like sure that so many associations it's I'm like I've, I'm sure I've met someone because again like you kind of even even just before going to college you know you've got all the different Christian schools that are like we're here the next yeah year. that's what I was thinking well I taught philosophy there for three years oh, after I got okay. my PhD so yeah nice. and, and we like competed against Houghton and yeah. some other schools and things so yeah yeah no and that's I mean that's yeah, all the Christian schools are kind of <laughs> connected in that way. Yeah, it's so well, it's so funny because I went to University of Pittsburgh for undergrad, but now I'm at Trinity and I'm like, oh, the the Christian college experience is much different. You know, yeah. even as a student, the first yeah. year I was on campus. And so I got it, you know, at least a taste of that. And I was like, oh, man, that was <laughs> oh, it would have been a, a very different world. I, I mean, I would, I'm sure I would have loved it, but yeah. Um, I do think part of the reason I went to undergrad at Pitt was to be like, I've got to find out what I actually think about life. Cause I yeah, yeah. school and yeah, been involved in youth group my, you know, yeah, my whole life. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the thing you kind of realize you're, even if you don't necessarily mean to, you're kind of obsessed with certain ideas and things like that. But yeah, anyway, very, yeah, very, uh, that's so cool. Now you teach, your school now is in Florida. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, I was a youth pastor in Walla Walla, Washington for nice. four years. And <laughs> so that when I talk about the times in which I really wasn't sure everything I believed, that was a lot of that period. Okay. Then I went and did a master's of divinity in Kansas City yes. and uh, was a youth pastor and music person during that time. Uh, then I went to Southern California, did my uh, another master's and a PhD in religion and philosophy, yeah. um, and then went back to Massachusetts for my first job of teaching, taught okay. three years in philosophy there, mm -hmm. and then came to Idaho to teach at uh, Northwest Nazarene University, okay. taught there primarily theology but some philosophy for 15 okay. years, Okay. and uh, now I teach uh, at an online, I do doctoral students online at a school that's based in Florida. Okay. Okay. But do, do you live in Florida now, if I may ask? No, I still live in Idaho. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I, that's why I put it, because yeah, I'm in, I'm outside Vancouver. I put it in Eastern time because I was like, maybe that'll be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm in mountain time. Yeah. I was wondering, I was like, it's still light out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I was going to say, because 15 years, it's a long time to also be somewhere, I guess, and then to move. So it's nice to stay, I'm sure. Yeah, I take it uh, the way you say that you don't know my story very well. I was laid off uh, five, six years ago in a big controversial thing at my institution. Um, and it had to do with my, basically my president thinking I was too liberal or you know, too far out there and wanting to please conservative constituents. And I uh, had to go through a heresy trial. Oh, which, uh, yeah, which I survived, but the president still wanted me out and figured out a backdoor way to lay me off. But that erupted in uh, the faculty giving him a no confidence vote. Oh, okay. um, 
He resigned a month later. It was a big thing covered in news across the country. And um, they still didn't give me my job back, but I ended up uh, settling for a severance to try to find another job. So, yeah, I've been through a lot for the things I believe. <laughs> well, yeah. So, okay. Now, I, so I, I read a tiny bit about that. when I Oh, read you did? That, okay. Just a little. Well, I, I think, um, I'll be honest, when I was introduced to open theism in any yeah. way, which I don't know if you even, I don't know if there's necessarily a distinction between open and relational theology, like if that's somehow removed from open theism, to me, again, being somewhat new to this, I was like, I, I don't think necessarily it is. Yeah. Um, but I was introduced to it as a heresy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, but by somewhat, so I, I work part-time at a seminary, just doing like the marketing and communication stuff. Yeah. And- and part-time at a brewery, which is a very yeah. combination. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was someone at the seminary who who was like, yeah, so, you know, I'm, like someone's actually doing part of their part of their fi- their final project um, on open theism, and I, I was like, oh, what's that? And they were like, oh, well, usually it's seen as a heresy, and <laughs> I was like, oh, and then yeah, and then I took the the this class in the fall with Myron on basically basically the problem of evil. Um, now that was from the ph- ph- uh, philosophical side, but what happened was serendipitously, we had to read a book called God and the Problem of Evil. <laughs> ah. Now, the hilarious thing is, it was not this book, it was a different book, oh. <laughs> but, but the bookstore got this book, purchased that one. Oh, yes. that's interesting. <laughs> so, ah. so, I've read, yeah, I've read your article in here, okay. Uh, and there was another book in the, the other one was also a uh, I have it somewhere on my bookshelf. I should have pulled it out, but it's got, if you want to see it, it's the same title, but a different, um, I think it was William Rowe, who was the editor for that uh, one. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, there was another article in there about uh, kin- kin- the kenotic view kind of, and a little uh-huh. bit of a different uh, vein, but yeah. So it kind of all, it was so funny because I was actually going to return this to the library and then I saw your name on it and I was like, oh, wait. Oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, because uh, as soon as I learned about open theism, I looked through uh, Homebrew Christianity's podcast. I just like searched that term. And that's when I saw your oh, podcast. So I good. listened to that. I guess it was probably, it was probably sometime over this past summer, spring or summer. So yeah. oh, a year excellent. ago around. And I know you've done more things with trips since then. Um, you guys are doing a lot of stuff. I'm always like, well, Trip's putting out a million podcasts. Oh yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it's kind of funny how, and then every everything that I find out and talk to Myron about, he already knows about. So um, <laughs> anyway, again, that's that's kind of where that came out. So rewind. Yes, I did a okay. little bit of a little bit of research. Um, but but part of my question, and you can go any which way with this. Part of my newest quandary is like how did we get so set on the fact that god is unchanging and i think that's the thing because that again you you know you kind of said in this article you said you solve in a way you do solve the problem of evil which is i think a huge reason why people deconstruct is that this is just not logical to have a god that we say we believe in and evil um but i almost some you know i'm like how did i how did this become such a paradigm like paradigm of 
you know, or within the aspects of God that we have to believe this. And why is it so, why is it seen as so heretical? And I don't know if you yeah. have any, I'm sure you've thought about this. But yeah, well, I think there's two primary reasons. One's kind of philosophical and the other is psychological. Okay. Uh, let me start with the psychological. I think a lot of people want something rock solid they can mm -hmm. put their life into, their belief structures, something you know, and we call it foundationalism in philosophy. They want a foundation that, that's sure and true and unchanging, and God is that unchanging thing. So that's one attraction. The other one that's philosophical comes from the way uh, people in ancient times understood perfection. Mm. Um, and they thought to be perfect would be to be at the highest rung and any change in perfection could only be toward imperfection since God is perfect, the perfect being, then God must be unchanging in all respects. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea, I mean, even though in the piety of people, they thought God responded to them and, you know, they read the Bible and it said God repented and, and sort of in the, the common language of Christians, they talked about God changing in the academic structures of Aquinas, Augustine, mm -hmm. Luther, Calvin, etc. They had a God who is immutable in all respects. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what open and relational theology uh, says is that God is unchanging in nature, yeah. but God is an experiential being. And that experience changes. This is sometimes called uh, um, dipolar theism. I call it God's essence experience binate. There's a, an aspect of God that is immutable and one that's mutable, changing and unchanging. Mm -hmm. And that helps me make sense of tons of things about love and life and scripture, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. I, I almost, I'm like, I don't think, if someone says some that a, you know, we attribute personhood to God and to some extent, if yeah. you say unchanging, you know, well, how, how would an unchanging being interact with prayer? You know what I mean? Wouldn't. Or, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't. Yeah. No, yeah. it makes no sense. And so that's the kind of, so then, so yeah, so this was my journey looking into open theism. I was like, oh, this seems, I was like, this seems pretty logical. Yeah. And then the other thing, and this is what's kind of funny. This is the kind of the counterpart of what I'm looking at is that in even the very, maybe mainstream evangelical conversation, uh, there's a pastor, um, John Mark Comer, who I would say he's, so he's out of Portland. His town is called Bridgetown, but he came out, I guess now it would have been two or three, maybe four years ago with a, a book called God has a name, which very, you know, very Barnes and Noble, like the whole structure is kind of structured like the Rob Bell way, like gotcha. a sentence, a, a break, a you know, two sentences, a break, that kind of deal. Yeah. And he talks about how God changes his mind, you know, in Exodus, oh. and things like that. But he's very, I mean, I would say traditional conservative and a lot of other respects. And I think it's kind of funny that I'm like, I think he's they're at their church. Now they're actually doing a project on or a series on deconstruction and kind of, I think, taking it from a very, you know, uh, yeah, traditional standpoint of like, they kind of were like, well, there's good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. And my friend who's in biblical studies, which, you know, 
she's she's got a lot of knowledge she's like yeah you're determining this by the outcome you know like <laughs> i'm like okay it's good if you end up you know back in within you know the fold and yeah so, anyway, so that's kind of well, I curious as you as you mentioned earlier i i'm well maybe you didn't i'll, I'll just say it um, i direct the center for open and relational theology and in our center we have people from very liberal to very conservative, you know, yeah. we've got on the conservative side. I know one guy who's like a, you know, Republican pro gun kind of person. Oh, wow. um, and there are more liberal probably than conservatives mm -hmm. in the group, but there's a, a, a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And in part, it's because some of the more conservative people have an evangelical background that takes the Bible super seriously. And mm -hmm. the Bible portrays God as giving and receiving being yeah. moved, changing, uh, repenting, etc., and so they follow the logic of Scripture to open theism or something yeah. quite like it. Now, oftentimes, what happens is those people over time start to, I'll say, become more progressive because they uh, realize that some of the hermeneutical questions that they they're asking can't be easily answered in a kind of a strict kind of way that mm -hmm. is characteristic of evangelicalism. Yeah. And so over time, a lot of those people become more progressive, but not all of them. Yeah. Now, would you, would you kind of contribute that or attribute that to, you kind of said like love is the central aspect of God. And if you start actually interpreting things along those lines, that will change, I think, some views of needing to kind of uphold these other attributes so strongly. I think and, so. Yeah. Yeah. And At I, least that's the, the, the testimony or the witness of so many people who are open to relational theology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true of my own life. Mm -hmm. uh, we all do things a little bit differently. We think about love a little bit differently. Yeah. But when you start with God's love, you're oftentimes going to be much more charitable to people who interpret mm -hmm. things differently instead of having a, a rigid, this is the only way to interpret the Bible. If you start with love, you're going to be more open to diversity, racial, sexual, etc. Yeah. You start with love, you're going to typically uh, think about God as a person in, in you know, relational kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all kinds of sort of implications. They aren't necessary entailments of love, but they're kind of implications that start to play out when you, you start with love as God's primary attribute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So... Um... I guess rewinding. And now I realize I have way too many questions for you. So now I'm trying to like prioritize. Okay. I've already, di I've already diverged you, which is my own fault. But anyway, <laughs> um, poor Myron. But so, so rewinding kind of your own journey, uh, you said re rebuilding took a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that, you know, in that regard, I know, yeah, you, you, you said in some things I've heard this kind of open and relational standpoint is something you've been developing then for a very long time. And I'm also assuming, you know, developed more in doing several master, two master's programs and a PhD. Yeah. Um, but how, how did that look like coming, coming kind of into this, you know, I, I'll say faith from a, from this new perspective, having kind of gone through, I'll, I'll say deconstruction if you don't hold that label then. Oh, I called it deconstruction in okay. those days. Yeah. Great. I mean, awesome. deconstruction is a word you hear a lot today, but it wasn't a word you heard, you know, 20 some years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was 
30 some years ago for me. Wow. But yeah. it did, it did surface some in more academic circles. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of truth in developmental psychology. And one mm -hmm. of the truths of that form of thinking is that change occurs, but it takes time. It takes time for you to get over certain ideas and see the connections and the implications. And you have emotional connections to ideas that you don't even, even know consciously. Mm. So, you know, things like saying God is sovereign, you know, man, I did, I didn't want to say that in one sense because it implied to me that God was a controlling God and I believed in free will. And if God was sovereign, that means, you know, evil is what God either caused or allowed. And that didn't sound right. But there's another side of me that thought, man, if I don't say God is sovereign, how can I be a Christian? Isn't that like essential? And so these kinds of things I was working through in my head, but also, I don't know, just experientially, they had to kind of play themselves out. And I see that's the case for others that I talk to, including my doctoral students. Mm. It takes them a while. They'll see some good ideas. They'll see the, the value in them, but their, their psychology takes a little time to catch up to those good ideas. Um, and so that's the way it was for me. Yeah. I also think that um, there weren't as many role models when I was younger for how to do this as there are today. Mm. Um, and so I think I probably made more mistakes and um, I was less bold than perhaps some people could be today because there are people you can look to who, you know, have done some of this or who are doing it publicly. Now there's some, you know, I think some examples of people who aren't so good, but, you know, that's kind of part of the process. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think, yeah, it is kind of a phenomenon that it is now yeah more mainstream which is again kind of what i'm examining um yeah. and it, it's it's also funny you say this like you're saying it takes time and i'm like oh yep that's what's happening to me right now <laughs> yeah. you know like i like it's i not comforting is it <laughs> yeah well even just seeing like it's it's honestly and it's coincided you know it's coincided with this program and like a you know, worldwide catastrophe. So everything's, you know, <laughs> kind of always yeah. like, oh man, you know, and not really, not really being at church, like things that were, are very grounding, you know, yeah. have been kind of uprooted, but it's, you know, even the trajectory of, cause my, my friend in biblical studies, she's kind of being vocal about her, um, yeah, her deconstruction and how it's, how it's been. Yeah. Very intellectually based, not, you know, she wasn't hurt by the church. She wasn't, uh, bitter just has had this process where she started asking questions and has learned a lot about, yeah, biblical history and things like that. Yeah, um, right. and you know, 10 months ago we were talking about stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think that yet. And now I'm like, no, oh, yeah, I think, I think that too, you know, like yeah. different things. And well, and part of the dynamic too, at least for most people, I don't know about for you, it's, it's the communal, the communities. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. you talked about your parents, uh, you know, yeah. my parents were never, able to ask the questions I asked and I had to decide how much I would tell them and yeah. be careful around them. Mm -hmm. um, my mother, who's 80 some years old, only recently has decided that maybe, you know, being gay or lesbian is, you know, not that 
sinful. So that taken her a long, long time to yeah. get to that place. Yeah. Um, and she was always kind of a front runner in terms of thinking about theology in new ways. Yeah. And not always helpful in my view, but she was open to something new and right. not everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah, going off your point of kind of the psychological, you know, wanting the certainty that that not changing provides, that's tempting. And I, and I think to, yeah, even just, just starting to the experiment in thinking about something differently, like for me, it felt kind of scary, you know? Oh and, yeah. Super yeah. Scary. Yeah. Even like, oh no, like I, I, you know, this, is this, is it even sinful to think these things, you know, that yeah. they can be possible. And that's, I think, part of it. Um, it's strange to say, but actually going to atheism in one sense was helpful for me because I sort of just took everything out. I started from scratch. Yeah. And I said to myself, okay, what should I believe? What do I have grounds to believe? What seems plausible? Can I live my life as if love doesn't matter? Mm. I can't. I can't live that way. Yeah. So if I can't live that way, then I probably ought to have some kind of way of thinking about reality and God in which love is going to play a role. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. kind of making those steps help me to construct the kind of views of God in life that I have now. Yeah, yeah. So a few, I do have a few kind of more... Um, questions surrounding maybe your orthodoxy or <laughs> lack thereof <laughs> um, and your beliefs. And then also, uh, again, I'm trying to just be mindful of time in general, because I now so many things. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, but but kind of a few questions in light of what's going on now for people who are yeah starting maybe this process. But um, the first things, and I, maybe you said this somewhere, I, yeah, I heard some of the things that you said and, and I think, yeah, God's sovereignty that I know, yeah, is a, a different picture. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on board with that too, that that took even a little while. Cause again, sure. you're just told yeah. like God's in control. Like I talked to my grandma and it's like, God's in control. We don't need to worry. I'm like, she'll, you know, she's 90. She's not going to stop saying that and everything. Um, but yeah, but I, but I wonder, so now, you know, I, if I understand correctly, you still understand, or you still have the understanding that we're in a sinful world. Um, things are not as they should be. And while we kind oh. of, we have now this part to play, I think more than, more than some traditions would actually, would actually contend that we do, or even maybe in practice show that we do, especially if everything's predestined. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. um, but because, but even, you know, if we have that in the, in the sin respect, what does it mean for you that we need salvation and, and does punishment come into play with that? Or what is the salvation from? Yeah. So salvation from my perspective and a lot of open relational theologians perspective is something that begins here and now it has a very much this life focus. It means uh, overcoming habits and addictions. It means uh, changing the way we, re we react to our families and partners. It means loving our enemies. It means working for a world in which 
you know, we combat uh, climate change and stand up for species. And a lot of the kind of things you think about Christians doing in this world to care for themselves and, and others, the kind of things that are in the Bible, frankly, of how we ought to live, that is what salvation is about. It's not primarily about going off to heaven when we die. Now, I do believe in heaven. I do believe in an afterlife. Most open and relational thinkers do believe in that. Uh, but we think that salvation isn't just a kind of escape hatch to get out of here. Salvation is a way of living well in the world. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. And we think we can start to experience it now when we change and transform ourselves and our world. Mm -hmm. Most open and relational theologians don't believe in eternal conscious torment in hell. Mm -hmm. Some might be universalists. Some might be annihilationists. Some might believe in purgatory. I have my own view that I call relentless love that says God never gives up on anybody, but because we have free will, God can't guarantee that everyone's going to say yes. But so there's a, a variety of ways to think about the afterlife. It's just that I, I don't know any open relational person who believes in eternal conscious torment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is nice. You know, it's a nice thing to not believe in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't think there's good biblical warrant for it. And yeah. most biblical scholars would agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think it fits the idea of a loving God. Um, so, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. now I do think you ask about punishment. Mm -hmm. I don't think God ever punishes. Hmm. However... I do think that there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to God's love. Yeah. So it's not God who is, you know, making you, uh, I don't know, throw up because you drank too much the night before. <laughs> it's just the natural negative consequences from being stupid in the way you drink. Or, right. you know, it's not, you can kind of go down all of the things we typically think of as sin, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them just have natural negative consequences. And so that's how I think about, that's one of the reasons we should avoid them, but not the only reason I think we should avoid them because we want to make the world a better place, want to make our lives better, want to please God, all those kinds of usual things Christians would say. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, the kind of God you talk about in, in some of your other yeah interviews and whatnot as well is much more, more parental. And yeah, in that, I mean, again, leading with love lends right. itself to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's the thing is I think it's easier to leave a God that is not at all like a parent. That's very much like a rule keeper and, yeah. and everything like that. So I think for, for maybe maybe more people than who are reconstructing or starting to see things again from maybe a more open and relational perspective, how can we start interacting with God more as a parent, you know, instead yeah. of, instead of this kind of monolithic, like judge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes talk about God being the perfect parent. Mm -hmm. Some parents suck. You know, some <laughs> yeah. parents either abandon their kids, you know, they're not involved with them. They're kind of absentee parents. Other parents are helicopter parents. They're trying to manipulate and steer their kid into the right school and the right team. And, the you know, they go overboard. They don't respect the autonomy of the kid. 
But the perfect parent influences without dictating. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way we should think about God's love. I think also in a, I'm actually co-editing a book of open relational essays mm. on partnership with God. That's a big mm. theme that yeah. uh, God and, and I actually have a partnership. I, most of the time when I pray, I address God as my friend. And it's that kind of relational yeah. element that's at the heart of how I think about who God is. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. I love that. Um, okay. Two more big questions that I just want to okay. uh, get in here. I know I'm like, yeah. so, I'm like watching the clock. That's all right. You're awesome. Also, you're also, I have to say again, your email response. I, you, I can't even, I don't understand how you're so on top of things, but it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone is grateful who works at all with you. In any uh... Um, so I guess the first one is kind of pertaining to those who will deconstruct and will not reconstruct. You know what I mean? They're, they're kind of, they're done. They're over it. And there's a lot of, even you're mentioning psychological reasons. There's a lot of reasons that someone might kind of be like, I can't do this anymore. The churches, they see the church as hateful. They see, you know, manipulations of power, things like that. This is open to any which way you would go, but what are words that you would share with them, you know, from based yeah. on your experience and then your history kind of interacting with a, a different possibility for the church? Yeah. So you're talking about people we today oftentimes call the nuns and the duns, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what do we say to those people? I say, be honest. Mm -hmm. Be honest. I do believe in God, and I think God respects honesty. Also, I say, ask yourself how you think life ought to be lived. And most people I know, sooner or later, get around to the love word in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And if someone is pursuing the ways of love, even if they don't believe in God, I think they do believe in God. I, you know, I don't want to be imperialistic and sort of, you know, put all their doctrines in their head, but I'm going to say, because I think God fundamentally is a loving God and is the inspiration for all our love, I think they respond to that God, even if they don't believe in that God when they love. Mm. So um, I say to nuns and duns, if you don't think you can believe in God, that's fine. Um, what do you think you can believe in? And nine times out of 10, they come around to the kind of values Mm -hmm. that I think we should attribute to a loving God. Mm -hmm. Now, I earlier mentioned an afterlife view. Mm -hmm. I think God always calls everyone at all times in this life and the next. Mm -hmm. So uh, when people consciously say no to what they think God is in this life, I don't think God gives up on them. Mm -hmm. I think God is relentlessly loving in the next. And it's my hope that eventually all will see that this is a God of love who wants their best interest and all will eventually cooperate. So I think that's a really hopeful view when we think about the nuns and duns. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. The sun just came out outside. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm like, this is what we need. Um, no, that's awesome. And actually it's so funny. My one other question you were, yeah, you had the interview with Trip about going Wesleyan. You said, this is, I think from a couple of years ago, you said you're writing a book about the purpose of our lives. 
which I think that kind of ties to what you're saying. Are you still writing that book? Is that happening? No, it's not. I ended up doing a different book. Okay. Uh, have you seen my book, God Can't? I have seen it. I have not read okay. it, but I've seen it. <laughs> I think you would like that a lot. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's my best-selling book, and it's the one that kind of flips people's heads upside down. And Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, got, I get letters at least once a week from people who've read that book and it's changed their lives. Wow. Some of them are people who are survivors of abuse and now they have a reason to believe in God again. Sometimes mm -hmm. I've got letters from pastors who say they can pray now because this is a different way of thinking about God. So um, that would be a book that I'd recommend if you have any, I'm sure you got more books to read than you have time, but if yeah. you get around to that, that would be great. Yeah, no, I, uh, no, I, I've been, well, I like the title. Obviously it's gets you right away. Um, but I've, yeah, I, I mean, I'm very intrigued by the whole idea and I have been, yeah, looking at, well, even what you, what you say in, in this, in the canonic view yes. that, you know, God not interfering in terrible, intervening in terrible situations is something that, yeah, that throws people off. Yeah. And, but also when you think about it, I'm like, that makes a lot more sense, you know, to all of our experience. Um, well, I, sh I should have added, I started going down the road of God can't to answer your purpose question. Yeah. <laughs> the last chapter in that book, um, I, I give five things that I think you should believe to, about okay. God to as a survivor or someone who thinks about evil. Yeah. And the last one is God actually needs our cooperation if yeah. love is to win. Yeah. So yeah. That's kind of a major part of the purpose question. I think our yeah. purpose is to love, love others, love the uh, other creatures, the planet, love God, love ourselves. And if we don't, then all of the things God wants to see happen can't happen because God really does rely upon our cooperation. That's a radical view for lots of people, especially yeah. those who have come from a, the idea that God is sovereign and God's going to do whatever God wants to do. Right. Um, but it, I think it means our lives are ultimately meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have one more question, okay. but I am, and I super apologize. I overhydrated in preparing. So I'm going to run to the bathroom. Sounds good. Back. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. This is probably the spazziest interview you've ever <laughs> you've ever had. 
I'm like, probably, yeah, this is, they don't give you a class on interview skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, I've done that many, many times. So I understand perfectly. <laughs> oh, you're it. Yeah. You're, you're awesome. I honestly, it's so funny because this whole process of even coming to school just realizes how much like, yeah, mental weight I've kind of been carrying around because when you have to, I mean, yeah, ensure that you're saved still, you know, so you're not going to suffer in hell forever. It can add a little pressure to your life, you know? Definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anxiety is the word I would use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is, that's another thing that I think what you said kind of it describes it perfectly. Like there are times what I've said to my one friend is I'm like, there are times I'm like, yeah, we're fine. What we're doing now, we're being honest, we're being straightforward. And then there are other times I'm like, are we okay? Can we still like, can we talk about this? Yeah. Kind of, you know, you're like trained not to think about all this really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My wife yeah. Uh, grew up in a tradition in which they talked a lot about Jesus coming back, you know, and, and that scared the living daylights out of her. And yeah. for some reason she associates that with new year's day. And it's been, 40, 50 years since people said that to her. But even now that wow. thought comes to her mind. So it's hard to get over some of those things we're, we're taught. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, yeah, it's uh, the other, the other thing I, I know this will come out more is when, cause I haven't been home for the whole pandemic. I've just been in Canada. Oh yeah. Well, so I haven't, it's like all these, yeah. Kind of origin parts of me too, or, you know, my own history is kind of feels like it's over in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. And when I do go back, I'm like, what, well, you know, what will that mean? Or what will kind of come out differently in light of everything? And I, you know, we'll have to find out, but I think, yeah. uh, yeah, I think, cause that's the thing I'm so excited now for, it just feels like a more possible world, you know? And yes, yes. Yeah. I tell you, and when I speak and present these ideas to people, almost every time people come up to me and they'll say, you know, this makes so much better sense. I've already been kind of thinking this and hoping it might be true, but no one's really articulated it the way you have. Hmm. So, yeah. 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 Now, I, I, if I listened correctly, uh, you're still involved with a Nazarene church. Um, still an ordained elder. Yep. Ordained elder. Um, and that's within the evangelical tradition, correct? Roughly kind of? speaking, yeah. It's okay. kind of got a Methodist roots, but yeah, it's okay. pretty evangelical. Okay. So my, I guess my last question is, in light of what's happening, I think with, I think more people, again, having access questioning more things. Um, how do you think this kind of deconstruction phase is going to impact the evangelical uh, branch of Christianity? I don't know if that's too broad of a question, but yeah. Yeah, I think it'll shrink it drastically. Okay. How's oh. that for being blunt? <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> I think it'll shrink it drastically. I don't think it'll disappear. Yeah, um, yeah. In part for developmental reasons, uh, part of what is attractive about at least some forms of evangelicalism is its simplicity. Hmm. And yeah. some people uh, just cognitively are not able to develop into complex thinkers. And so there'll always be a form hmm. of Christianity that's simple. And uh, I think it'll be there. Wow. But um, evangelicalism, I think, thrived on insularity insular yeah. communities 
-hmm. And in an increasingly connected and interrelated and informed world, that's really hard to do. Mm. It's hard to keep all your your kids under your wings as an evangelical, you might say. Um, And so, yeah, I don't think the future of evangelicalism is a future in which it's going to grow. I think it's going to shrink drastically. What exactly replaces it? I don't know. Um, I think what we usually call the mainline churches Mm -hmm. um, have particular traditions and ways of doing things that aren't attractive to a lot of ex-evangelicals. Yeah. And so there might be something new emerges. Who knows? I, I don't I, I can't predict, but yeah. I will say evangelicalism will shrink, I suggest, uh, pretty yeah. drastically in the next 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I'm I'm appreciative that you answered it bluntly. It's something where I'm kind of curious, but you want to hear from someone who maybe knows a little more about what they're talking about. <laughs> Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been, I can't even articulate how awesome this has been. Oh, Um, thanks, Kristen. Yeah. Yeah. If you have any other, yeah, thoughts or resources or final words, I'm happy to hear them, but I, you know, I also, you've got, you've got family, so I don't, I I don't want to take more of your time. Well, how about if I suggest some people you might talk to, who have you talked to so far? Honestly? So the, the big, kind of initial phase and this is what got me going in the project anyway was talking to a lot of people about just deconstructing like how things cracked and a lot of those people are not well known some of them um like there's a there's a guy also out of portland two guys they have a podcast called almost heretical um very interesting uh, they're, yeah, they're like early thirties, mid thirties. Um, so I talked to one guy from that and then I've done research. I mean, a lot of it's been kind of in this podcast community, but not a lot of experts. And that's kind of more, I'm talking now to people who, you know, uh, philosophers, theologian, biblical scholars, and then ideally a few pastors as well. Um, so I'm open. Let me, yeah. Let me suggest that you listen to an interview between, uh, Mark Karras and Dan Koch on oh. the you know that? <laughs> I know Dan Koch. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both of those guys are good friends of mine. But Mark Karras okay. came out with a book this last year on deconstruction, and it's called okay. Religious Refugees. Um, okay. And what makes his contribution, well, if you listen to that podcast, you'll get a lot, a lot of it. He, yeah. he, um, he comes at it from a psychological perspective, although mm-hmm. he's a pretty good theologian. Um, so you might not even need to interview him, but if yeah. you listen to that podcast, you can decide whether or not he's, and if you decide to interview him, I'll put you in contact with him. Oh, wow. I, that's awesome. I would, that would be incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Ah, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's the thing. What was I just going to say? Yeah. Part of the, part of the point of my project is that it will be four episodes total and that's it, you know? So it's some, it's kind of synthesizing like a lot of even my own, like, I, you know, listening to all these different uh, podcasts and doing a master's program and things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, good, so, good. So I would, lo- I mean, I, yeah, I would love that. But also it, I do want it to serve as a resource if, you know, people, again, maybe more again, like me before this program are just starting to question things or have concerns. And yeah, I think even yeah, just kind of serving as a collection. And I know Dan's got his So You're Deconstructing website, which kind of right. provides that to you. He uh, and Siri, yeah. You know, yeah. Siri, 
I'm actually talking to Sari tomorrow. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, Sari's a great, yeah, great uh, individual. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's un- it's a little bit unrelated to the to the podcast, but yeah, um, Myron put me in touch with her about something else, which is yeah. oh yeah, she would he would know both of them, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, it's so funny. It's like it truly is. There's there's this whole community. I mean, when I emailed you, like you do feel like a celebrity to me, but because it's like this community, I'm like kind of feel like I'm just watching everything. Everyone. Just, I also yeah. talked to um the other person I almost forgot, Mason Menega. Oh yeah, who, I know Mason too. Yeah, yeah. he's a good guy. Yeah, <laughs> he's got he's got the best tweets I on on Twitter. He's awesome. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. I'm like what. When I talked to him, he was so nice and like, you know, norm, normal. Like I was like, where's all this, co- you know, all this coming <laughs> from? And you're t- it is a different persona, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but also, yeah, thank you for all you're doing. Again, like even yeah. just being willing to talk with me means a lot. Um, Welcome, and- Kristen, and I'd love to see your or hear your final product. So. Send yeah. it to me when you're finished. Yeah, yeah. No, now I've got to make it good so I can. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Yeah. Well, enjoy the evening with your granddaughter. And uh, yeah, I'll be in touch. Sounds good. All right. See you later. Bye, Tom.